0: All right, please open your Bibles to uh, James chapter 1. We're going to drop down in there very soon. James chapter 1. And as you're, as you're turning there, I, uh, I come across a, a, a story. Um, I hear more and more people using this story. I first came across it in 94 to be exact. It's about a man named Reynold III. I still think it's a great story to launch us into our discussion. He was a 14th century duke in what is now Belgium. He was grossly overweight, and he was commonly called by his Latin nickname, Crassus, which means fat. <laughs> After a violent quarrel, Reynolds' younger brother, Edward, led a successful revolt against him. Edward captured Reynold, but did not kill him. Instead, he did this. He built a room around Reynold in the Newkirk castle and promised him that he could regain his freedom any time he was able to leave the room. That's it. Problem was the room and Reynolds size. To regain his freedom he would have to lose weight. But Edward knew his older brother, and, and, and he built this room around him with a door of near normal size, and it wasn't locked or barred. All Reynold had to do was lose weight. But what his loving brother did to him is each day he sent a variety of delicious foods. And instead of dieting his way out of prison, Reynold grew fatter. And when Duke Edward was accused of cruelty, he had a ready answer. He said this, hey, my brother is free to leave at any moment. He can go at his will. Reynolds stayed in that room for 10 years, and he was released only after Edward died in battle. But then, Reynolds' health was so ruined, he died within a year. And the author of this little clip says this, he died a prisoner of his own appetite. I mean, that's that's a gripping statement, a prisoner of his own appetite. You know, I so appreciated this sermon. I just want to go home now and open up Hebrews 12 and let that go back over me. I mean, I filled up a page and it didn't do justice. I want to listen to it again. Dr. Dorn just really leveled us with grace and with humility uh, that we struggle with things. We struggle. We're worn down with our trials, with our struggles. Uh, It is true that Many of us might not wrestle with overt public moral failures, but countless will struggle with what we call, and what we're going to call today, private sin habits. And I'm just going to tell you that these private sin habits hold potential to do more damage than some of the public stuff that we can get into. We know what it means to be a prisoner of our own appetites, don't we? Private sin habits, and I'm going I'm to define these, but let me just say just this general category has a way of robbing believers of our joy. We just heard that in the sermon. Robbing believers of our peace. It, it's people that struggle with private sin habits that after a season will start limping around, starting to doubt their salvation even. And we'll get more into that. And it really just pulls down not just their peace and their joy, but their, their growth. Why try? I'm meeting with a guy right now that um, um, I, I, I'm still digging because I know this is here. And he, and he showed me just enough to know that um, there's sin in his life, and that's the reason he's disengaging from everything. And uh, there's no growth, no joy, no, no peace. Now... What I want to do with you, and I'm just going to talk pastorally to you, I know we're in mixed company, but we're all adults, and I'm just going to move kind of freely through different awkward definitions. And if you want to trade places with me at any point, I'll come sit in your chair, you come up here. (laughs) say, how did this study come come about? Well, I had the joy from 1989 to 1994 serving as a GA and then on staff at at Bob Jones University while I did some grad work there. And uh, my first three years, I was a dorm suit. Second the last two years, um, I was asked to be the the campus counselor something it was a It was a job they were bringing back. I think pearson johnson 's kind of in that role now, um, three people removed from my time. but I was asked to do the campus counselor and then also to do a fellowship for the singles that were on staff, just to kind of create some community and so loved it. It was two years. I got to work directly under jim berg and 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 uh, and learn a lot from him so at the end of that time, I knew the Lord was moving us to the context of the local church. That's, that was always the trajectory. And people like Art Larson were part of putting me on that trajectory when I was a child, when I was a kid. Um, and so in 94, uh, the Lord uh, opened the door for me to transition to Richmond, Virginia to be a youth pastor. And, uh, and, and, and the, the tricky part was this. It was my job at Bob Jones ended at the beginning of May. And I couldn't move to Richmond until the beginning of June. So I went to Jim Berg. I said, hey, man, I need, I just need something to do for a month. I don't want to go up to Richmond because I don't know anyone up there except the guy that interviewed me. And, he, you know, he seems nice, but I know you. I want to stay here. Is there anything I can do? I had written some study guides for the counseling ministry there that we were using. he says, yeah, you can stay for a month and you have to write something. I'm like, okay, what do you want me to write? And he says, um, well, what is it that, that you counsel a lot with the guys I was like, you know, I should have known not to ask that question <laughs> because you can imagine what it is. Lust and masturbation. Uh, I, I could have lied and said that there was another one up there that high, anger and stuff like that, but that's the, I, I saw those other problems, presenting problems a lot. And so I, I said that to him. and He says, great, write a book on it. Write a study guide on it and leave it here after this month. And I'm like, oh, wow. My first... Um, sizable workbook and with, hey, what was your first book on? <laughs> you know, <laughs> and, I, and then so I started punching back at him. I said, "What are we going to call it? We're going to put a big M on the on the front in a circle." And a, <laughs> and <laughs> I, I said, in all seriousness, all seriousness, what um, if this is going to go back into the dorms as a counseling homework tool? So, what if a roommate finds it? I think we need to pan back from just that sin, okay? And he says, oh, yeah, okay, that's a good idea. So we, I said, how about if I call it private sin habits? But I'll list that as one of the four major habits we're considering. And he, and he went with that, and I wrote that manual. And uh, I'm happy to email it to you if you want it. I still use it today. Um, I've had a seminary student at Virginia Beach kind of sharpen some th- Edges to it for me as well, a seminary grad there. Um, but that's where this came from. Okay? Originally, this came, is just going to be a big M. Okay, um, But I panned back, and I have decided to use as a, as a lab example four private sin habits. And as we're working through this, these are four examples of private sin habits. Number one, of course, is masturbation. Number two, I'm going to put pornography in with that. Number three, I'm going to talk about uh, binge eating and a fourth private sin habit. I don't know what you want to call it. I'm going to put drinking down there. I'm not here to start a debate on that topic, but I'm talking about the kind of drinking that uh, when I was a pastor in Winston-Salem, North Carolina, uh, in, in the shadow of Piedmont Baptist Bible College, a young couple moved down to study for the ministry. And what would happen is when... He was supposed to be home working on his homework to study for the ministry, and his wife was out working. He was, he was um, hiding vodka and stuff behind the water cooler at home, and he, when he was by himself, that's where he was running. Okay, I'm, I'm talking about that kind of drinking, all right? Um, I want you to have those four in the back of your mind, because I'm going to move pretty consistently between those four, but let me pan back a little bit more. I do want to keep this just a general category uh, for everything we say, because, you know, we're inventing new private sin habits all the time with technology, with, with pharmacology, with, with substance. Um, there, so the things that we're going to say, I do want to pan out and keep it general because no matter what is invented that hasn't been invented yet, this is still going to be the same heart engaging these sin habits. Okay, So in a sense, I do want to stay panned back just a little bit. And what I want to do is I want to give you, I know you're frustrated already about those notes because I didn't fill them in. I had those, That would be eight pages filled in and I don't want to read to you because I don't like to be read to. Um, I want to interact with you and with this material. But I also want you to see those five points, listen, as a template. Because whatever private sin habits are invented in the future, if you just, no matter how overwhelming they might seem at first, if you just just settle and remember these five categories... These five categories will not only inform your study to prepare to counsel these things, but they're going to give hope to your counselee. All right? And so the five-part template is this. We're going to to look at precipitating factors, the general nature, the after-effects, the scriptural verdict, and the transformation possibility. This is a template, not just for these four, but for any others. And... And uh, I don't know where all of you are in your training and, and reading and study and practice of biblical counseling, but, um, and I don't know what strain you've learned in. If you've learned from the Lafayette strain, there are six key elements to biblical counseling, right? If you've learned from uh, the Westminster guys, Mac and Street and them, they talk about the seven eyes, and they're really saying the same thing. Uh, the Westminster guys add an extra I called inducement, which means church discipline, and uh, the, the Lafayette guys... Um, don't usually include that. It's an understanding. But what do you do? What are the six key elements? Data what? Data gathering. gathering. And then once you have gathered data, you uh, discern what? This is where you do your heart work, or start your heart work. Discern the problem. You go from the objective down to the subjective. This is the Jeremy Pierre, the dynamic heart. You're going to swim around and in the intellect area of the heart, and the affections that that births, and then the volition issues that come out of your affections, OK? And you're going to look at those three categories, as Pierre says, in relation to God, and in relation to yourself and your relation to community. So data gather gathering, discern the problem, give hope. Gain involvement. This is your contractual talk. Here's what you can expect from me as a counselor. Here's how committed I am to helping you. Here's what I expect of you when you come back in two weeks. Okay? Gain involvement. Provide instruction. This is your teaching time. Always have times of teaching. We're not doing a two, three, four, five. And what's the last one? You guys remember what it is? Yeah, assign homework. Right. I want to. I want to say to you. Very simply, that if you follow a template like what we're going to be going through here, you're going to see that, um, as you identify precipitating factors, it's going to help you tremendously with your data gathering. Okay, and as you discern the problem. Um, or as you, as you work through the general nature, saying, well, here's, here's the general nature of this type of, of private sin category. Here's what it, it leaves in its wake, the after effects. Scripture does speak to this type of heart issue, and there's a possibility of change. If you stick with this rubric, I'm convinced that you will cover all six of these key elements, and it will infor- they will inform everything you do here. So let's, let's jump in. Uh, to these okay and by the way when we talk about private sin habits we are not just talking about bad habits you say you have an example of that I'm going to go back a long way back to the days when James Dobson had a bigger microphone uh, preparing for adolescence I mean he just said just masturbation is just a bad habit it's just um, that's it though okay and I'm going to suggest that all of these that we're going to consider as examples are not bad habits so I want to look, first of all, at precipitating factors. What is a precipitating factor? I'm using kind of J. Adams' language with you there just a little bit. And here's a simple definition. It's, a, it's any influence that encourages and hastens you to a certain action. Okay? Um, it is interesting. Uh, I want to use Dr. Dorn's wording a few moments ago. He's, he's using a psychological phrase, but uh, chasing it down with the biblical categories. The word trigger. He says there are two types of triggers. What are they? What did he just say? You have, it's not real hard, external triggers, right? And then you have internal triggers, okay? Um, I'm going to say that's what we mean by precipitating factors. But it's here that I want to give you several of these because they're going to help with your data gathering, okay? Most often people chase down private sin habits like the ones we're considering masturbation. The private drinking, the, uh, the binge eating, and pornography, they do it when they are fatigued. And we're not surprised, are we? Uh, Christians tend to drop their spiritual guards when, when we're tired. We do. I, I like what Jim Berg says. He says, I am as spiritual as I am rested. I like that. Fatigue greatly reduces our desire, not our ability, to say no to certain sins. And Satan is aware of that. And I do hope that you're aware of the enemy in all this too. I'm talking to you in the heart, but there is a spiritual warfare going on and it's real and we don't think about it enough. Okay, And it's strange, the book we go to for so much about progressive sanctification, Ephesians, has a lot to say about spiritual warfare too. We don't get out of chapter 4 to enough. Uh, but we'll come back to that. It was during this time that Satan himself even tempted... Jesus, in Matthew 4, 1 through 11, right? And it was during times of fatigue that Christ guarded his disciples. He insisted that they take a season of rest, Mark chapter 6. Pastor Dorn just referred to that as well. And Jesus also shed some light on this on the eve of his betrayal when he came to his sleeping disciples in Gethsemane. He says, watch and pray. The Spirit is willing but the flesh is weak. That's Matthew 26, 41. So if, listen, if our Lord knows this about us, fatigue is an issue. Don't deny it. And we can make our jokes about coffee. Um, we, are, we, are, we are a house. We, we are in a building right now that needs rest. When it's not, it, it betrays us. When it's not rested, it works against us. So knowing that we're going to reach for private sin habits during times like this, I want to give you a suggested data gathering questions. Just a few. Just a few. Number one, talk to me about uh, your sleep patterns. Are you getting enough sleep? And, and I don't want you to define that with a yes and no. I want you to give me specifics. Um, are you getting too much sleep? You know, people that roll around in their bed three hours after they're awake are going get, to get in trouble as well. Talk to me about your exercise routine. Do you have any exercise um, and then I always, I, I like to ask um, on this one too, talk to me about your intake of caffeine. Now, I'm a coffee drinker. I can do Starbucks just to be socially accepted, starting with my wife. She's, she drinks Starbucks black strong stuff with dragon in the title, stuff like that. I ha- I'm glad my wife hasn't discovered the Black Rifle Coffee Company, right? I got the T-shirt, but I can't drink it. I like Dunkin' Donuts coffee. I love coffee. I'm not getting on coffee. But I want to ask them, hey, uh, we're putting everything on the table. Talk to me about your caffeine use. How many cups do you have before lunch, after lunch? How late into the day do you drink coffee? And you're not off the hook if you're not a coffee drinker. I want to talk about um, chocolate. I want to talk about teas. I'm just going to track it down. Um, By the way, sometimes you have to tell your your counselees if they're not able to fall asleep at night so they get up and get involved in stuff that they shouldn't at 2 in the morning. Uh, you need to say if you're a coffee drinker, you can't drink coffee after 4 o'clock. That's simple. Okay? It takes seven hours and work it out. Um, and you need to be in bed in seven hours. Sometimes, and Doc Smith used to talk a lot about this, he takes people off caffeine for the duration of their counseling, which might go three to six months. What does that look like? In the words of Dr. Bob Smith, and his, the guy who wrote the Christian Counselor's Medical Desk Reference, he says it's like this. He says, I tell my, I tell my counselees, I'm taking you off caffeine as long as we're, we're counseling. And, and here's what you need to do. Part of your homework, I'm writing it down here, part of your homework is from here you need to go to CVS and buy a big thing of Advil. <laughs> okay? Because <laughs> you're going to need it. <laughs> and then you say, what happened? He says, well, um, start taking them before the headaches start. And, uh, and he says for the next two weeks, for the next two weeks you can expect to have headaches. So take, take, the, take the aspirin or take the Advil. And you're gonna, you can expect several day, just a few days into this for the rest of the two weeks kind of living in a fog. And it will just take the smell of a roasted bean to set you backwards. But stay with it because I'm going to ask you. You can't have any coffee. I want you 100% off right now. He says, but after you hit the two-week mark, he says, it's like the sun comes out. And, and life suddenly gets beautiful and HD color. He says, you're in a good place now. Stay there, you know. Sometimes you have to do that. I want to know about their caffeine. though. Fatigue is an issue, so um, now since they've come for help, I can start poking around in all those areas for data gathering. What's another precipitating factor? Pressure. Pressure from their life. Uh, pressing. And, and by the way, this goes along with what we just heard again from uh, Pastor, Pastor Dave, Pastor Dorn. Um, we're coming through what is probably the most intense thing I've ever been to in th- almost 30 years of pastoral ministry and everything he said i and i know you relate to but i'll just say this many times when the demands of others or self that's for the perfectionist in our midst whenever these expectations and demands are pressing christians often will look for a momentary escape a momentary escape to find temporary relief in masturbation in pornography in the private drinking, in binge eating. This could be students facing exams. It could be marriage partners facing trials. Teens facing parental authority. Employees facing pressure. And these people are just looking for a brief, quote-unquote, break. Again, it's, it's the desire, not the ability, to say no that dwindles. Um, it's interesting. Uh, your Bible Uh, Well, you're open to James 1. You know, we'll come back to there. Go with me to Psalm 55. I meant to send you to Psalm 55. I love seeing the likes of David, King David, a man after God's own heart, struggling with this kind of pressure. You say, well, um, did he ever get into sin because of it? Well, Bathsheba, perhaps. I mean, but I'm just glad to see a man after God's own heart struggling with pressure, and he admits it. And Psalm 55, to me, is a great admission. I'm going to read it and use my voice inflection to kind of emphasize some things. Look at verse 4. Look at this language he uses. Well, let's, let's go all the way back. Um, yeah, we'll start at verse 1. Give ear to my prayer, O God, and do not hide yourself from my supplication. Give heed to me and answer me. Look at these words. I am restless in my complaint, and, in, and I am surely distracted because of the voice of the enemy, because of the pressure of the wicked. For they bring down trouble upon me, and in anger they bear a grudge against me. My heart, look at this, is in anguish within me. And the terrors of death have fallen upon me. Fear and trembling come upon me, and horror has overwhelmed me. All right, this is cool. I can relate to this guy. And, and I can relate as he gets into verse 6. He's looking for escape. He's admitting it at least. He says, Oh, that I had wings like a dove. I'd fly away and be at rest. Behold, I would wander far away. I would lodge in the wilderness. I would hasten to my place of refuge from the stormy wind and tempest. Thank you for admitting that, David. Thank you for not staying there, too. Look where he ends the psalm. Verse 32, Cast your burden upon the Lord. He'll sustain you. He'll never allow the righteous to be shaken. He says at the last line of this, I will trust in you. But I love hearing his admission of that. Knowing that, knowing that during times of pressure, we can find ourselves moving towards a brief break, then here's some more data gathering questions that you need to have in your arsenal as you try to help these people. I would ask them something like this. Give me the five most prominent stress factors in your life right now. List them up. And by the way, especially listen to the first two or three that come out because those are the ones that are fresh. They're right there. I mean, if you're going to ask me that question, I'm going to talk to you about pastoring during COVID, to be honest with you. It's been awful. I mean, God's been gracious to our church. I've seen a lot of friends get hurt. There's been some pain in our congregation. Um, not like what I've seen other people endure. And uh, I'm, I'm looking to, to get through that. What are the five most imp- prominent stress factors in your life? I would ask this. Talk, talk to me about how many hours you work each week. If there are a student, undergrad or grad, I'm going to say, talk to me about your current education uh, information, your, your hours, um, your responsibilities. I'm going to ask questions about their parents, even if they're adults. What's your relationship with your parents? What's your relationship with your, your spouse if they're married? What's your relationship with your in-laws? Talk to me about how it's going with your children, even adult children. Don't miss that question. Sometimes you're counseling someone in their 50s and 60s, and what they're going through with their adult children, they haven't told anyone yet. And uh, number eight, talk to me about your daily routine for every day of your calendar week. Jay Adams, uh, well, it, this wasn't original with Jay Adams. He, he, gets, he gets a lot of notoriety because it's in the book, but he refers to the Journal of Upsets. How many of you know what a Journal of Upsets is? okay. It's just basically I, what I've put it, it when I put one together in a uh, eight and a half by eleven, and it's basically just divide it into seven um, slots. How many is that? One, two, three, four, five, six, seven, and then uh, and I just put this as a grid. I say Sunday, Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday, Friday, Saturday, and then I I I usually start it at six a.m. and I go to eleven p.m. And, and, I, and in its boxes, I say, I want you to take a picture of your week. This is your homework assignment for this first week, part of it. I want you to take, give me a snapshot of every waking hour. I want to know when you're working. I want to know when you're playing. I want to know when you're sleeping. I, want to know, I just want a snapshot of this. And, uh, and that's called a journal of upsets. I just need to see that. It's interesting. When I was uh, in Winston-Salem, every once in a while, Piedmont would send a student over for me to counsel. And a, a guy came over for counseling, and he was counseling about private sin habits, pornography and masturbation. And, and so I'm, I'm working through what I usually do with a student like this or a counselee. And this was part of my homework assignment. It always is. I want, I want a picture. I want a snapshot. Well, he brought that back in the next week. And he says, my goodness, was this eye-opening. He says, I had never given it this kind of thought before. He says, not only uh, have I seen a pattern with when I'm tempted to indulge or when I do indulge. But I'm seeing um, I'm seeing where I'm wasting time. I'm seeing where I'm, I'm not getting the sleep I need to. And I'm also seeing around those times I'm usually facing a temptation towards this. I've already started um, changing what I'm doing th- during those two hours or during those hours. And I'm like, well, this is working great, man. I mean, um, I'm, I'm counseling for free, but I'm not even earning my money on this one. You know, he, he's just figuring it out. He's seeing his own heart. Proverbs talks about understanding your own way, your path. So, I want to do a journal of upsets too, just to get um, an idea of their pressures. You know, another precipitating factor is bitterness. Okay. It is interesting that anger and a lack of a willingness to forgive or, or to accept difficult circumstances often edge Christians towards giving in to private sin habits. Even in Psalm 37, verse 8, it says, Do not fret. It, alone, it too can lead to, um, to evil doing. And, and it's true that bitterness and anger will lead to indulgence in lust and sin. Did you notice too, in what Pastor Dorn was preaching on this morning in Hebrews 12 and verse 15 you have right there in the same the same context not only bitterness but immorality I mean just note that so knowing that bitterness can move someone towards indulging in these private sin habits you need to ask some questions at that point I'll ask questions like this list and briefly discuss the five times that you've been hurt or angered the most in your life and again listen to the first three that come out those are the fresh fresh ones I'm going to ask this question. What in your mind would be the hardest sins to forgive if they were committed against you? This is looking for bitterness. When you see bitterness in the New Testament, that's the scorecard guy. They're keeping score. I'll ask this question. Do you think that God is fair? I'll ask this question. Right now, I want you to think through the authorities that God's good hand of providence has placed into your life right now, in the church, in your home, at work, and and do you respect those authorities right now? Or is there an anger or bitterness? Because if there is bitterness, they're, they're running for breaks. It might be to the restroom. It might be to home. It might be off on lunch. That's where they're indulging. I want to give you one more. I don't know if you've uh, seen this. Perhaps you have. Uh, fatigue, pressure, bitterness, that kind of makes sense. And I can track those tendencies through Scripture. But calm times. I don't know what else to call these. Uh, these could be... Uh, I had one counselee, uh, a seminary student, say these, this is his phrase, these are times of, I wrote it down here, celebratory indulgence. That's his wording. Uh, This is is when, well, you're not really fatigued, and there's not a lot of pressure. I mean, there's the normal pressure, but nothing extraordinary. I'm not angry at anyone. I'm really not struggling at all. But then this thing shows up in your day at a time when you had no idea it was going to come. And you find out that right under the surface of your flesh, you're still, you're still easy prey. Or as a seminary student said, I've gone three or four months. And then he says, and then I, for some reason I get tempted just a little and I want to prove that I'm no longer hooked. And he'll indulge. Almost like a celebratory indulgence. See, this doesn't have me anymore. And then he says, but then I'm hooked again. I'm hooked again. So, um, something... Uh, important, I think, to keep in mind. Um, you know, I, I think of Genesis 1, 2, and then especially chapter 3. Things were pretty good. Here comes the temptation, right? I think of uh, Matthew 6, 1 Corinthians 10, 12. Dr. Dorn referred to some of these passages already. The moment that we think we have risen above any sin is the moment that we become easy prey. So, precipitating factors. Now, if there's a new private sin invented in the future, with technology or, or pharmacology or anything like that, start here. Say, well, what are the precipitating factors? Why are people running towards this? Start your study here, preparing to counsel someone. Because whatever new is invented, our heart will still respond the same way to these things. All right? The second part of the template I want to suggest to you is the general nature. Uh, you say, well, why, why would you want to point out the general nature? Well, it's interesting. You don't just give hope in counseling by saying change is possible. I mean, you give hope with that. That's 1 Corinthians 10.13, right? 1 Timothy 4.7, Romans 6, Romans 13. Yeah, you can go through the, the transformation um, uh, passages, and we are going to go through that. But giving hope also involves saying the Bible addresses sins like this and, and really f- kind of frees you as it describes how your struggle is real. How is the struggle real? Well, first of all, private sin habits are enjoyable, right? Is that a little secret? I mean, think of the four that I'm using as an example. They're enjoyable, I mean, what would you rather do, repeatedly hit your nose with a hammer or watch a basketball game? Would you rather run out in front of a moving truck or swim in a mountain lake? Would you rather, would you, would you rather enjoy a nice walk in the sun or watch University of Michigan play Ohio State with Jim Harbaugh coaching? Okay, I mean, what, one's going to be enjoyable. Once I know you changed your loyalties to state, but uh, okay. Um, the other's not. I mean, you're going to go towards things that are enjoyable. Of course you are. And it is interesting to note, though, that Hebrews 11.25 doesn't deny the joy. It says, but the, the pleasure of sin is passing. It never comes. I, I uh, recently was working with someone um, dealing with a private sin habit that we're listing here. Um, a guy my age. And, uh, and, and, and his is coming more from pressure in his family. And, and, uh, and so he's reached actually for two of our private sin habits. He's reached for uh, that, the private drinking um, to the point of intoxication and also uh, to pornography on his phone. And I said, well, by your own admission, since you can't have one thing, you're reaching for another. He said this to me. He says, if, if I've been fighting this in my family so long, where is God? He, he's not helped me. If you, and then he said this, if you were on a diet for... Six months and it didn't work, wouldn't you try a different diet? And I said, Well, by your own admission with that illustration, something wasn't working, and that was God and His word, so you will reach for something else, right? He says, Oh, yeah, that's kind of what I said. I said, and You talk to me, you're, you're, you're reaching for, for the bottle, you're reaching for images of immorality. I said, Has that worked any better than the six week diet you were on before? He says, look at me. I said, absolutely not, because you have to keep going back to it, see. You have to go back every night to that drinking. You have to go back to your phone on the breaks from meetings. I said, so let's, let's, let's be honest here. Uh, you're running to something that's enjoyable, um, because, uh, b- but you need to know that that's not even working. That's a passing pleasure. Even <coughs> Job talks about, uh, or you read in the book of Job, uh, that the joy of the hypocrites, only for a moment. Uh, they are private. You say, why are they private? Well, because that's what we call them, private sin habits. Okay, no, um, it's not because of that. Uh, but we call them that because you're not usually doing these out in the middle of intersections. Okay? Um, why are they so private? Because of embarrassment or pride. Some people would say, you, you don't understand what the people around me or the people I minister with or to would think. That's embarrassment. It's pride. Uh, you have the fear of discovery mixed in with that. You have the, the guarding of your public testimony that you've spent years to build up. And so they keep these things very private. Very, very private. It's interesting, even Jesus says in John three, twenty to twenty one, When when we're doing what we know displeases God, we go into the darkness. We withdraw into isolation. Now, number three, I'll say this about the general nature of all private sin habits. They are, and that should have quotation marks around it, addictive. I'm pulling a, a, word, a phrase, a word here that uh, is big in our culture right now. Everything's an addiction. Um, scripture would have us probably use a different word. Uh, scripture would have us in, in Proverbs 19, verses 12 to 13, would rather talk about hidden and presumptuous sins. Or in Proverbs 5.22, you know, Proverbs 5.6 5, and 7, a dad talking to his son about, about purity and immorality, and, and it says in Proverbs 5.22 that when you're involved in this kind of sin, you are bound by this. You are bound. That, that, that's the Bible talk of addiction. But what I'm talking about here is um, they do put a hook that you can even feel physically if you, if you deprive yourself of them. I want to. Jay Adams wrote a a, a helpful book called uh, A Thirst for Wholeness. It's just a a pew level work through the book of James. And it's good. He has a good discussion in there. And I just want you to listen. And the recording, there's going to be a recording of this if you want to go back and get some of this information. But he distinguishes what he calls bodily innate desires and mind implanted desires. Bodily innate desires. In mind planted desires. I want, I want to use his words here. So listen, when it comes to bodily innate desires, he says, uh, these are sometimes called bodily appetites. They come along with the human being as part of his physical inheritance and all serve wholesome, God-fearing functions when properly aroused and gratified according to the scriptures. No such desire is wrong in itself. It becomes an evil desire when it is wrongly habituated and gratified for the wrong purposes at the wrong time in the wrong way. So those are bodily innate desires. Can I give you two examples? Food and sex. It's God's idea. Both of those are God's idea. And he has given each a yard <laughs> uh, to keep those, those, uh, the, the gratification of those two areas in check and in a way that will glorify him. You know, food and sex being enjoyed the way God created it, actually it glorifies God. But mind implanted desires, he presses this a little further. Bodily innate desires you're born with, mind implanted desires, he says, are not innate. A mind implanted desire is is a habituated desire implanted in the body by each individual and it becomes a bodily craving that is capable of inducing physical pleasure or displeasure that is felt in the body when it is gratified or frustrated. Implanted desires may become associated and combined with innate desires in various combinations as well. And so, I'll make this observation. Both bodily innate desires and mind implanted desires can lead to fleshly cravings and habits. Masturbation, pornography, binge eating. Our bodily innate desires have to control the sinful flesh. You were created with a hunger for sexual intimacy and food, yet the flesh has hijacked these desires to the point of being an addiction, a must-have. And I would, I would argue that alcohol consumption is a mind and to desire. It's something that's learned that nonetheless puts a, a hook in you physically. If you want more talk about how an outside substance like alcohol, and we have to talk about marijuana now in Michigan too, you know, we got to do all this. Um... And, and how an outside substance coming in can put a physical hook. It, it's your heart that introduces it into your life, but once in your life, it can create a physical hook in your body. If you want more language like that, get a hold of Ed Welch's book, just simply called Addictions. He'll, he'll dress that out more, and I, I, I address that more in a different setting. Um, so, you say, well, how can you tell if you are addicted to these private sin habits? I, and, and I just usually say, well, stop trying cold turkey in your own strength. You'll figure it out. Your body will scream as if it's being deprived. Now, I have a little note here. Don't use that illustration in Egypt anymore. Because I was preaching or teaching this through an interpreter to some grad students in Alexandria, Egypt. And I get to that point and I talk about just, if you want to know, if you're really hooked, try stopping cold turkey. I had 40 grad students in hand. 38 hands went up in the air. They wanted to know, okay, what do we do with a cold turkey? Is how how, this really helpful? They, it just totally blew them away, and so I wrote down what's in my notes here. Don't do that in Egypt anymore. What else? They are common. I mean, do I even need to tell you this? Um, I mean, there are, there are studies of, of go, numbers going up in all of these private sin habits we're looking at. You know what I heard this week? Um, uh, because of the, the use of TikTok. Uh, did you hear that? Teens are going to the doctors now. This is on the, the um, Wall Street Journal podcast this morning with Gordon Deal. It's a spinoff. And, and, uh, and, and these teens are going to their doctors with ticks, not the bugs, but ticks of their body or their voice inflections that are um, associated with uh, Tourette's syndrome. And the doctors are noticing this, and now they're comparing notes. A lot of these teens are watching people on TikTok that have ticks. And they're learning this, and, and, uh, and those numbers are going up. You know, you want to know another private sin habit, indulgence you need to consider too, is just the whole use of social media and how it affects our lives and how it's messianic. We're going to get to that though. But these are common. They're, they're, they're common. Drinking is common, of course. And, and I'll just go ahead, since I'm driving home to Ipsy later today, and you don't know where I live. Um, we have a lot of people that are angry Christians, some of the younger generations, um, who, are, who are mad about the whole thing about alcohol, and they felt lied to, and, and there's been an introduce, introduction of alcohol that that is shocking, to which even John Piper says, and I'm not hyper Piper, don't worry, but I enjoy some of his writings, but he says one thing that jolts him about the young restless reform crowd is, and these are his words, the cavalier drinking of them. I'm going to let you get mad at Piper on that, but we can, we, can, we can fight and have that, ar- that argument over and over about drinking, um, but the, the bigger issue is um, we're not only seeing more counseling for drunkenness with some of these people that are mad, but even the ones that can control it and tap the brakes on it, it's in the refrigerator, and, I, and I'm telling my students, we're going to be counseling their children. We're going to be counseling their children in, in the coming 20 years in a big way. So... That, that's, uh, that's definitely getting off the road here a little bit. But here's the big point, and this is probably the biggest point of, that we're going to say in our time together today. Every last one of these examples of private sin habits is substitutionary. And I'm talking here, they are reached for at the exact moment for the exact reasons that we are to be reaching for Jesus. You know, we, though we are redeemed, if we are... If if, if our faith and trust is in Christ, and if we are truly regenerated, we still can feel the pull of the Romans 1 exchange grabbing at our ankles as we go through our days, can't we? I'm still tempted to exchange what I have in God and in Christ for something that doesn't last and it's not satisfying. All of these, think about it, think about it. When you are facing fatigue... Because either the press of life or um, the schedule of of a season of ministry or anything like that, do I reach for a private sin habit or do I reach for Christ? When you are facing pressure, Jesus says, my peace I leave with you, right? Do I have to go to Philippians 4 as well? When you're facing bitterness, Jesus says in Matthew 18, 33, you need to have a forgiving posture. And you're going to find that by looking at me, Jesus says. When one of his own is facing calm times, Christ says, Never drop your guard. Rejoice that your name's written in heaven. Live the gospel life, but there's no coasting allowed. I just want to say that it, it, it's here. Um, some biblical counselors, I think, correctly get to this issue with any kind of sin and start talking about a worship disorder. I think that's appropriate to talk like that. Listen, whenever you and I are indulging, we are worshiping. If it's in a bathroom stall, if it's in bed, if it's alone on a walk, when we indulge, we are worshiping. After lunch, I'm going to do something on same-sex attraction, and we're going to spend a lot of time in James 1, and I'll try to prove that um, at that point. Okay. But secondly, what else are we going to do to give hope? Talk about the after effects. These are simple. These habits always deliver guilt. Just look what David has to pray through in Psalm 51. His, his wasn't a totally private sin habit because it involved a lady, but for both of them it was. And look what he had to pray through in, in Psalm 51. They deliver guilt. These habits deliver subjectivity. I find this often with counselees, and that is if they're indulging in things privately, privately and I, I, could, I could give you names, or I don't want to give any names, but I could give you cases right now um, these people are sure other people know something's up. The wicked flee when no man what? No man's pursuing, Proverbs 28.1. But these habits also deliver salvation doubts. Eventually, these habits can become so repetitive in their life and become their, their messianic go-to that they are like, they'll, they'll start asking these questions. How can I be saved? I've asked, I've asked forgiveness a thousand times since I was 20, they'll say. And now I'm way past midlife, and here I am still fighting this. And sometimes, some seasons, I'm not even fighting. How can I be regenerated? I'm just making an an observation here. But I'm telling you, when you go over the general nature and the after effects, it's amazing, it's strange, but you start seeing them lighten up. Because that's exactly where I am. You've just described me. And I don't talk about this to anyone can you help me? And yeah, let's just keep the cart moving. And then we go to uh, the fact that Scripture is not silent when it comes to private sin habits. I will use the four we're looking at this afternoon or this morning as an example of that. But this goes for knowing the human heart doesn't change. This goes for any private sin habits that are invented still. All right. For example, just some things for you to consider, uh, and these will be on the recording. What about masturbation? You say, "Well, the word's not in the Bible." No, but it is not an option prescribed by God in 1 Corinthians chapter seven, verse nine. Right? God gives two options: marriage or self-control. Uh, number two, lustful thoughts invariably accompany this habit, and in Matthew five twenty-eight, Jesus calls this thinking sin. I've had one guy come to me after I've did, done this lecture at another institution. And he was an older student. He came up and he says, he says, well, um, yeah, I'm not married, uh, but I do have physical problems and my doctor has told me that I must do this. I must do this to have this release, to have uh, other effects within my, my physical body. And So I get a pass, right? I said, no. Um, well, I want to ask you a question. And we're, there's not other students around. This wasn't in the middle of the class. I said, when, when, and how frequently you do this, as well as frequently as I think the doctor wants me to. And, 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 and I'm like, what's going on in your mind while you do it? Is your doctor's face in your picture, or facing your mind? He goes, no, no. I said, does, does the, the constant release make you feel better? Is there, is there a sense that I shouldn't have done that? And is there also an increasing of an appetite to see images? He goes, yeah. I said, you know what? God's created your body. And I'm not saying you don't have struggles in your body. I said, but God's also created your body to have a release at night while you're sleeping and no one's ever died from exploding, <laughs> okay? Uh, as one of my teachers used to say. Lustful thoughts invariably accompany that. Paul commanded Timothy um, to, to run away from youthful, youthful lust in 2 Timothy 2.22. Um, this flees, flees towards them. I, I do want to caution a little bit on the use of 2 Timothy 2.22. I don't mind using it as a general principle, but don't rob that of its context. When Paul's talking to Timothy there, he's talking about, I believe, uh, the youthful lust of control of other people and of situations as a, in, in, in local church leadership. Um, so keep it in its context if you're going to pull that one out. But a lot of people still reach for that, including... Sproul and MacArthur and people like that for this topic. So do it, but just don't lose the context. When this habit is characteristic of one's life, his life is mastered by lustful passion instead of honor and sanctification. It's almost the wording of 1 Thessalonians 4, verses 4 through 5. And that's not even going through everything we could say about that from Scripture. But I want the say to see these passages and say, you know what? Scripture's pulling right up with you here. And it's going to give you some help give you some examples with overeating. Just a couple of points here because of time. Uh, binge eating is what I'm talking about here. Scripture clearly warns against gluttony. You're going to see that in the book of Proverbs. This habit amounts to serving your stomach or appetite as a god. If I can borrow Paul's wording from Philippians. And uh, I would also throw into that a number three, uh, the fruit of the Spirit. The last manifestation of the Spirit's fruit in Galatians 5 is self-control. It's enkrateia, And I do think you can make a line of of uh of implication towards your temple uh and how you're treating it all right um pornography i mean this is this is a easy target this is purpo- purposeful exposure to visual stimuli for the purpose of sexual fantasies and sensations what do we say about this christ calls this kind of thinking sin because it amounts to committing sexual uh sin in the heart again it's matthew 528 Uh, Job and David made covenants with their eyes not to gaze at such things. That's Job 31 in Psalm 101. Paul clearly admonishes believers to put off the old man characteristic of sensuality. It's Ephesians 4, 17 and following. And Solomon strongly exhorts his son to resist falling for the beauty of sensuous woman. He even says, don't let her take you with your eyes. Now, that's not saying everything we could say about that. Uh, what about drunkenness? Well, I'm just going to make some observations here. I'm not picking a fight today. Uh, drunkenness is prohibited by example. Um, you see bad examples of drunkenness in Genesis 9, 1 Kings 20, Proverbs 23, Isaiah 5, to get you started. Drunkenness is prohibited by command. That's Proverbs 23:31, and even Paul will say used a language in Ephesians 5:18, "Do not be drunk with wine. Don't be controlled with wine." Timothy. It's interesting, it has a good example in 1 Timothy 5, uh, he, was, he was totally staying away. We're not told why, um, but Paul's calling him back at least to a medicinal use of it, I believe, for a stomach's sake. I don't think that, a lot of people say, well, we can't go to the priest um, examples on this topic. I, I think that they're still instructive to us, um, to drop in there, that's Leviticus 10. Um, but um, again, I'm not going to pick a fight on this one right now. But you say, well, what about when it comes to private sin habits and other sin habits that will be invented? I say there are some general principles that apply across the board. The Christian is to deny himself on a daily basis, Luke 9, 23 and 24. The Christian is never to allow himself to come under the control of such influences, 1 Corinthians six twelve. I won't be mastered by anything. Uh, number three, the Christian is to do... Uh, anything that is not to do anything that paves the road to further sin, make no provision for the flesh with regards to its lust, Romans 13, 14. The Christian is to glorify God in all that he does, both publicly and privately. Uh, that's your verse that you say when you're hungry at camp, 1 Corinthians 10, 31. Uh, the Christian is to keep his body in submission, not authority. I'm using Paul's words from 1 Corinthians 9, Jerry Bridges would say, I had to teach my body that my body's not in charge. And then the Christian is to properly care for his body because it's no longer his. That's 1 Corinthians 6, 19 and 20. Just real quickly, there's one more point of hope for people that struggle with private sin habits like these four and others. And that's that there can be change. And here I'm going to go pretty rapidly. Um, Again, I'll drop the verses in the audio here for you later. First of all, Um, As paralyzing as these sin habits are, and people go for months or years, sometimes decades, before they ever talk to the first person about this. And the longer it goes, usually the conversation's coming up now because not that they're broken, it's because they've been caught. Um, Listen, he needs hope. She needs hope. And so I think one of the best places to start is the best hope-giving verse in Scripture, 1 Corinthians 10, 13. There has no peresmas, no trial that has overtaken you, but such as is common to man. And the middle of this verse is the battery of this verse. If you take the battery of the verse out, what I'm getting ready to say, none of the verse works. God is faithful. And your counselor needs to know that God is always faithful up close. He's never just faithful from a distance and he checks in on you. If he's faithful, he's with you. And that makes his whole verse work. He will not allow you to be tested beyond what you're able, but with the testing will provide the way of escape also so that you'll be able to endure it. One of my first homework assignments early on is to memorize that verse and have them read Christ and Your Problems by J. Adams, a little booklet on that verse. Um, And there's three principles that come out of that verse. He's faithful, temptation's common, and sin habits are beatable. This hope is only intensified as you look further at Scripture and see that being in Christ, you have all the resources necessary to live the godly, uh, to live a Christ-like life, Colossians 2, 2 Peter 1. But the passage that lays the groundwork, I think, and I think Adams and the biblical counseling movement folks are correct, is Ephesians 4. I mean, we can talk whether we should start in verse 22. I think you need to start in verse 17. It's what you weren't or what you used to be that you aren't anymore now that you've learned Christ. So the, it's not just, okay, I've got to try real hard, put off, renew and, and put on. That's important, but man, that stands, on, that stands on four chapters and 21 verses before it. It's not just that change is possible. Change is expected. All right? Um, uh, okay. I call that repent, renew, replace. So that's to put off, repent. Jim Berg in his book, Change to image calls repent, um, mortification of the flesh. Renew is verse 23, re- be renewed in the spirit of your mind. If you're going to be moving someone to, to behavior that's different than what they're used to, um, then it's going to take faith to get there, and faith will come only by exposure to, to the Word of God. And then replace is put on the new man, or act like what's true about you. Close the gap, trip and lane say, between your, your position in Christ and your practice in Christ. Um, I'm going to say a lot more about that in my afternoon workshop if you happen to be there. It's just some concluding thoughts and we're done. First of all, and these are, these are not to be pithy add on statements. I tell the counselees, you've got to pray yourself through every day as we work together. And I'm going to be working with you a couple of months. I'll tell them. Either every week, probably at the beginning, and we'll end up probably every other week. I said, but as much as you're encouraged by what we're going to talk about, as much as you're encouraged by the praying and repenting, as much as you're, you're, you're enjoying the homework, you've got to pray. Without me, Jesus said in John 15, what? You can do nothing. And, and, and I argue with my students that there's a real possibility to take a right approach to biblical counseling and use it in a legalistic way. God, I've done this, I've done this, I've done this, I've checked off the three R boxes, repent, renew, replace, I'm doing my homework, how come I still struggle? When you start talking like that, you're, what Jerry Bridges says, you're making God your debtor, and God will never be your debtor. Um, you are reaching out to him in prayer in the spirit of John 15, 5, constantly. They've got to be praying. View each test or temptation as an opportunity. 2 Corinthians 12, you know, your weakness becomes an occasion for your rejoicing because it becomes an occasion for his strength. It's here. If I was doing this at my old church, I'd break, this, I'd break the message now and say, come back next week because I want to talk more about number two. And I would do all a four-part series I have on the fear of the Lord from the book of Proverbs. The fear of the Lord is an awareness of him in your moments. An awareness of him in all of his fullness and all of his kindness and affections towards you in your moments. View each temptation as an opportunity for that. Number three, enlist accountability. This is the body dynamic that, again, Pastor Dorn just talked about. Hebrews 10, 24, 25. Ephesians 4 and 5. And uh, by the way, there's a new book out on this, on the one and others. Stuart Scott just came out with the book. We're using it for our men's ministry this year. It's 31 short readings on all the one and other passages, and uh, short readings discourage counselees need short assignments like that. And then practice radical amputation. I'm using J. Adams' wording for Matthew 5:29 to 30. There are going to be some things in your life if you're struggling, especially with porn, um, then then we're going to have to do some things with your technology you're going to have to throw that phone far from you, functionally. I mean, you might not be able to get rid of it because of jobs and all that, but there's a lot we can do to neuter that phone and, uh, and, and create accountability with your, uh, with your electronic devices. By the way, um, he's not a believer as far as I know, but if you enjoy reading productivity books, Cal Newport's fun. He's fun to read. And he, his book on digital minimalism might give you some help as you read that as a counselor thinking about what we're looking at here. Some recommended resources for progressive sanctification for private sin habits, Change to His Image by Berg. If you haven't read this book, A Theology of Biblical Counseling by Heath Lambert, get it, read it. And by the way, that'll be your cheat sheet for your ACBC theology exam and counseling exam. How to Break a Stubborn Habit, um, Erwin Lutzer, that's been re-released with a different title recently. The Dynamic Heart by Jeremy Pierre. This This is my book, man. I remember coming here I got mine here with you when Pierre came here a few years ago. And uh, I've been actually interacting with him a little bit recently to see if, could we use your, your rubric to create note-taking templates for counseling? And he says, actually, we are working on that. And he, so he got talkative about it. So I sent him back what I was thinking. And that was two months ago. Okay. <laughs> the Exemplary Husband by Stuart Scott. I know we're talking about men and women here, but there's a lot in that uh, that will be helpful as well as men counseling men from Street and the the Master Seminary folks. Um, Another one, if you want something a little meaty, is John Street's dissertation was popularized in in his book, Passions of the Heart, from PNR Publishing. That's not light reading. And if someone's really discouraged, you don't give a counselee technical reading. Don't do that. I I don't use John's book for my counselee. I might learn things that I'll teach him, teach a counselee, but, um, but it's still a good book. So yeah, have fun with all the private sin habits that haven't even been invented yet. But here's what I want you to do. I think you can see that if you use this simple rubric, no matter what's invented, you're gonna it, it's, they're going to help you. This rubric will help you fulfill your goals in every counseling session. This isn't just the first counseling session, every counseling session. So I just wanted to try to give you a little roadmap today. You have to take it home and pray through it and 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 adapt it to your counseling ministry. Let's pray. Father, thank you for this time, and, and again, this, this, uh, this conference. We thank you for the food we're getting ready to, to, uh, to enjoy, and the fellowship with other shepherds and other servants from the church. I pray, that, I pray that not only will we be encouraged, but help us to be a little retreat for someone today, and, and, and something we say to them, and how we listen to them without, without necessarily preaching to their problem. Help us to hear and we'll worry more about being, about hearing than being heard at first. And, and, but, Lord, given the opportunity, help us to, to, to drop a beautiful nugget of truth that's been helpful to us, that might be helpful to them. That's a good conference. Thank you again for Inner City Baptist Church. In Jesus' name, amen. We'll see you. Have a great afternoon.